All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is my bearded buddy, Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going pretty well. It's uh, um, It seems like the weather is finally starting to turn into like fall all the time. We had like a week there where it was in like the 70s, but now it seems like it's finally getting to that like chilly fall weather, which is my favorite. Ah, that's right. You do like the cold. I'm the opposite. I enjoyed when we lived in Florida. <laughs> it was nice there. Uh, I I enjoyed it too, but I think I just got tired of the same all the time. You know, oh, I wanted sure. I wanted something to change a little bit. So yeah, yeah. that's fair. Plus, the the nice thing about the cold is uh, I get to play ice hockey. So. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can flex yeah. for a second, Marty, I had a game last Please night. Please do. And I, and we won and I scored the game winning goal. Yeah. We won two, one. So. Wow. That's, and didn't you score two goals the other night too? I did on Friday. Yeah. Wow. So you're quite the uh, Sergei Fedorov <laughs> over there. <laughs> I don't know about that. I just got lucky. I had a good weekend. That's all. <laughs> cool. Nice. Well, Marty, we have a, uh, another friend with us here on the podcast today. So I'm pretty excited about that. You want to yeah. think we should bring him in? I think so. Awesome. Well, with us today, guys, we have Dr. John Sanders. John, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for, for hopping on and hanging out with us today. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a pleasure just to talk. I, I just love talking uh, oh, good. <laughs> about theology and Christianity. It, it's, it's, it's not work Perfect. <laughs> for me. Yeah. Well, then you're in the right place. Yeah, (laughs) that's for sure. Well, John, we have a a question that we like to ask every one of our guests. Um, It's it's a big deal, but it's not. Uh, um, John, who is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh, well, that would be uh, the Minnesota Stars. Uh, But now they 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 changed. uh, You know, the the North Stars moved to Dallas. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And, and so uh, uh, the new team, but I, I lived for 16 years in Northern Minnesota. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. That's a good answer. I think Marty, that's our first Minnesota answer we've had. I so think that's so. Good. I in a hundred so. episodes, the first one, that's good. 
Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> cool. Well, um, John, just for the our guests who are not uh, familiar with yourself, um, I know I first encountered you uh, through your book, The God Who Risks. And then I was super excited when uh, our mutual friend, Dr. Thomas uh, J. Ord, reached out and said, hey, John has a new book coming out. You're going to love it. You have to check it out and and have him on the podcast. And so that's how I, I know you. But for people who don't know you, uh, who are you? Uh, what do you do? And like, what's uh, your faith upbringing been like? Okay. So I, I'm a Christian theologian. Um, and uh, I write on topics that I have questions about. <laughs> so if something is interested or interesting to me, then I want to pursue it and write about it. I, I, I have not written on anything that I, wasn't a genuine question for me. So it has to motivate me to, to research it and write on it. Um, I was uh, raised United Methodist. Um, and then uh, late high school, early college, became a Baptist um, and um, went on to get a degree um, in undergraduate degree in philosophy and, and theology, and, and then uh, pursued a doctoral degree in, in, in theology, um, and have been a uh, uh, preaching uh, pulpit supply in all kinds of different uh, denominations. And eventually, I made my, my way back to my United Methodist upbringing. Um, so I, but I understand the evangelical world. I taught at two evangelical colleges uh, for most of my life. And now I teach at one that's affiliated, affiliated with the United Methodist Church. Uh, my wife and I have five children. We have two biological children and three children uh, from India. Um, and so we have a very interesting and complex <laughs> family, a uh, wonder, wonderful group of, of people. Um, I enjoy kayaking and playing basketball. So I have played hockey twice, um, but my skating is deplorable. Uh, but if we ever got on a basketball court, um, I would likely give you a no look behind the back pass that would hit you right in your chest. <laughs> I love to awesome. pass. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> cool. That's great. Um, John, one thing too, really quick, uh, that just I find interesting as well is that you are find yourself in the world of open and relational theology. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering kind of how did you find your, your way into that, um, you know, that way of thinking? Yeah. So um, it really began when I was in high school and um, I, I was a pretty nominal Christian. I wasn't very interested in it. Um, and one of my brothers was uh, killed in um, an automobile accident. And, and some of my friends in high school said, well, um, this happened for a reason. And, and God is, you know, God did this to convert you, you know, make you serious about Christianity. And I thought, Wow, so God, you killed my brother? And then people say, no, 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 God didn't kill your brother, but, you know, God, like, no, no, what you're saying is God killed my brother for some good reason, but God killed my brother. And and, and I didn't have an answer for that. Um, and and so that really prompted my, my questioning throughout college. 
And um, I was interested in different understandings of God. And um, in seminary, I pursued this uh, question and began writing a little bit about it. Um, and then once I uh, became a professor, uh, this was a huge uh, issue uh, for me. And it, it was when I began reading certain people and finding help, uh, both in, in uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, great influence on me, um, and then um, uh, Clark Pinnock and William Hasker uh, began reading them, um, and then contacted them, became uh, friends with them, um, that we then began saying, hey, you know, we have a distinctive understanding of God. <clears throat> it grows out of what we call the free will tradition. So it's not like it's totally new or, or anything, but we wanted to highlight it and develop it more fully. And so we came up with the name Open Theism. And then I put open theism as a subset of a broader category called relational ways of thinking, relational theology. Um, and it's really about relationships. I mean, that's everything. The atonement, sin, salvation, um, the Christian life is really about relationships with God and relationships with, with others. That's, that's wonderful. And I, I love hearing people's history. Um, I, th I think another another aspect of something we'd like to hear from you, John, is um, our podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And right. so we're curious, what's what's something that you have recently rethought in your faith? Like, what's the most recent thing um, that you've kind of rethought about your own personal faith? Hmm. Uh, well, that's a good question, <laughs> Marty. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I, I keep pursuing certain trajectories uh, that I've been on, certain paths, and exploring them more fully. And so uh, my most recent book is, is doing that. It really grows out of my work on open theism. And perhaps I could say that uh, rethinking atonement ha has been something that's um, more recently. Um, I, for years, I have not liked penal substitution theory and I had read a number of criticisms about it and agreed with those criticisms, but it was really when I was working with these uh, two uh, cognitive models and, and began researching in social sciences that it was like, oh my goodness, I think this explains what motivates some people to adopt penal substitution theory. Why it makes sense, it's sense to them. It's like, well, of course this is right. And why I was like, of course it's right. Of course it's wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, But coming to an understanding of why I believe it's wrong has been something that is fairly new to me. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump there then. That's a perfect segue into your book. So you, you mentioned it. You have a new book out. It's called Embracing Prodigals, Overcoming Authoritative Religion by Embodying Jesus's Nurturing Grace. I have it right here. It's a yeah. wonderful, a wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, but just, just for starters, John, why, uh, why did you decide to write this book particularly, and who did you write it for? Yeah. So, um, to be honest, there, there were so many uh, uh, of my friends and, and uh, colleagues and uh, others in evangelical Christianity who were saying things like you you have to be um, a certain kind of Republican 
to be a Christian. And I say, what? Uh, I don't think God belongs to either any political party. I don't care whether it's a party in China or, <laughs> or the, the United States. And this, this bothered me. <clears throat> and um, in church life, so many times, so many of my experiences uh, where people would say, you know, I don't think you're really one of us. You don't really belong here. And I was told this. I was actually a delegate to the Minnesota State Republican Convention. And people told me, I don't think you really belong here. <laughs> You're not sold out 100% for us. I'm like, what is going on here? So in church life and in politics, I was being told the same message. Um, and uh, uh, I, 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 mean, I wrote a book called Theology in the Flesh, which is really about cognitive science and how uh, the human mind thinks and how we use language to uh, understand different um, ideas. And in that book, I talked about these two models called nurturant and authoritative. And, and so um, I decided that I needed a popular level book. So why did I write Embracing Prodigals is to really get some of the ideas in my scholarly books out into the church more broadly. So, so Embracing Prodigals is written to lay people. It's not written. There are some books referenced in, in, the, in the bibliography, but it's not a scholarly book. And, and I write it in short sentences um, and try to make it very accessible in terms of, of readership. And what I'm trying to do is two things. One, explain this polarization that we're experiencing in the United States. And actually, it's, a, it's around the world. The polarization uh, in terms of Christianity. Christians are like, I don't get you you don't really seem to be one of us. And what's going on? Why is that? And then it comes out in our politics. So everybody knows the United States is very, you know, polarized politically. And these researchers have done all this wonderful study about it. And I was reading this material and, and realizing, well, this explains the polarization in the church as well. It explains why uh, some people believe hell the way they do. And others say that's immoral to believe hell is that way. And other Christians believe this is what you must think about the Bible. And other Christians are like, uh, I don't believe that about the Bible um, or atonement, or you just take any of the topic. What about salvation of non-Christians? It, it just doesn't matter. I know you've had people like Rob Bell on your show and N.T. Wright, and, and they say these things and people are like, no, that's just wrong. And so what my book is trying to do is explain why Christians are so polarized on these issues and passionate about them. What motivates them to arrive at these different conclusions? And I believe it's different sets of values. It's really about values. Doctrines are secondary. It's about the values. And then, so that's one thing. I'm trying to explain the polarization, why we're there, and help each other understand one another better. Not that we will necessarily agree, but you at least understand like, oh, that's why this person would say this makes sense to them, why this view of atonement or this view of hell. It's like, well, yes, I get it, why that would make sense to you. Um, and then the second thing I do is try to argue that Jesus was a nurturant and had nurturant values and make the case that the Bible overarchingly, the overarching message of the Bible is a really nurturant God. And so I use the, the parable of the prodigal son as a, if you will, glasses, lenses 
through which to see what God is like, to understand God, that God is an embracing figure. Doesn't say, clean up your act, and then I'll decide if I want to accept you. It's, no, I accept you. Welcome home. You are my child. I love you. I want you to change. So in both views, the parent wants people to change. The question is, what's the best way of motivating people to become, uh, to transform? And I believe it's by the embracing the prodigal, not by saying, if you first clean up your life, then I will accept you. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with that, John. And um, you know, as Josh and I read your book, the, the foundation of your book just seems to be, obviously, as you've been talking about that story of the prodigal son, um, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with the story, but um, would you be willing to give a rundown of the story just in a, a shortened, condensed version, obviously, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the story? Yeah, thank you. So in the story Jesus told, there's a son that has two fathers. And, and by the way, Jesus is telling this parable to explain why he is accepting these Jewish people who don't keep the Sabbath, who don't eat the, uh, the right foods, who don't uh, go to, the, to um, the synagogue and don't go to the temple. <laughs> so you, why do you eat with them? And Jesus says, well, they're like lost children. Um, and so he tells a parable in which uh, uh, one of the ch- children says, can I have my share of the inheritance? And the father gives, splits the father's estate to the older son and the younger son. The younger son then leaves town and eventually um, uh, doesn't have the money anymore. And there's a famine, food prices shoot up and he has to hire himself out and he's feeding pigs, which is you know just disgusting for any, any Jewish family. And then the text says, he came to his senses. Wonderful expression. Came to his senses and says, you know what? My father's hired servants have bread to eat. I'll go home, but of course I can't be a son anymore. But I'll ask my father to at least make me a hired servant. So he goes home and he starts the speech and the father says, ah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, embraces the son uh, and, and tells the servants to dress him, put better clothes on these, these rags, and let's throw a party. And at the party, the older brother comes in from the fields, he's been working, and hears music playing and says, what's going on? To one of the servants says, oh, your younger brother's returned home. Your father's throwing a party for him. And the older brother skulks and sits out in, in the barn. And the father goes out to that son as well and says, we had to rejoice. Your brother who was lost has been found. Your brother who was dead has returned home alive. And the older brother says, no, that's the wrong way to understand what's happened. This, quote, son of yours, not not my brother, your son, (laughs) um, has insulted the family's honor and has brought disgrace on us. And you ought not to accept him. So that's the parable that Jesus told. And the story leaves us with, will the older brother come in and join the party or not? Or will he be a party pooper? So... um, uh, the story is really about the nurturing father and this prodigal son and the authoritative son. And the father says, I'm going to be a nurturant father. Yeah. And so you've, you've used these, these um, two uh, different categories 
to talk about two different parenting styles. And you mentioned it just now in the, in the parable and that's nurturing. And the other one is authoritative. Can you like do a little compare and contrast just to get a, a clear idea of what's going on there? Mm-hmm. So um, nurturance are, are again, focused on relationships and empathy. That is really thinking about the other, putting yourself in their place, compassion, um, cooperation is huge with authorities. Um, so God invites us to cooperate in 2 Corinthians 5, cooperate with God in the, the ministry of reconciliation. Um, and nurturance are okay with complexity, realizing that you may have to adjust things. So for instance, is it um, lying? Is it always wrong to lie? Even Corey Ten Boom, okay, lies to the Gestapo when they're banging on her door wanting to know if she's hiding Jews, <laughs> okay? She deceives the Gestapo, the SS officers. Um, so there may be times where you have to lie. So qualification, nuance, that's, that's okay with, with uh, nurturing. Um, and uh, for authoritatives, it's no. These are the rules. God gave the rules, or whatever authority gave the rules, parents, and you never vary from them. You cannot flex them. They are absolutes for every situation. Um, and it's about individual responsibility, uh, not really thinking about the others. It's you that is the focus of, of uh, the Christian life. You, if you follow the rules, you'll get rewarded. If you break the rules, you get punished. So this is the way they think about it's all about the rules. So Rob Bell and others talk about rule-oriented Christianity. Um, and what I'm suggesting is all these authors are really nurturance. That, that in terms of the, of the uh, social science literature, they're really promoting a nurturant form of Christianity. And I'm trying to give name, name to that. So and then the last thing I'll say about authoritatives is they believe in the certainty that they are correct. And there's only one position you can have on any topic. And they have the right position. That's the claim. They have the right position. This is it. And if you disagree with them, well, there's only a limited range of explanations for why you disagree. Either you're just a sinful human, uh, you distort the scripture, or you're just plain stupid. So they want what um, researchers call cognitive closure. They, the closure that there's no openness to others. It's this is the right position. And this explains then why if you disagree with anybody in those groups, they ask you to leave. They don't allow for disagreement. You're just a troublemaker. So I tell stories in the book of when I taught son, adult Sunday school classes um, and the pastor became upset with me because I wasn't teaching the single right view. The problem was when I asked, well, what view would, the, would you want me to teach? And of course, it was his view. And I said, well, if I taught the right view, it would not be yours. And I knew that was the end of my, my tenure there. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's interesting that you've brought up, so you've, you just mentioned that story and you also, you talked about um, being around people who say, would say things like, you know, I don't really think you're one of us or you just don't belong here. That's pretty much my, 
<laughs> normal experience yeah. within within some of the circles that I swim in, which is exactly why we do this podcast, because I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. Um, and so we're trying to create a space to say, well, you're welcome here with us, regardless of, of where you come down on things. Yeah. So if I may say something about that. So for nurturance, uh, so, so you've had Tom, Tom Ord on. Tom's a good friend of mine. Uh, but we disagree on a couple of, of points. We agree on a lot, but we disagree on, on some important matters. Um, <clears throat> but for nurturance, the way they're going to operate is say, oh, you know, like uh, my good friend Greg Boyd has, he loves Christus Victor on atonement. Okay. I'm okay with Christus Victor, but I don't think it's like the only view that we can have. Uh, I like Abelard, uh, what he said. I like Rene Girard in the scapegoat theory. Um, so, Nurturance are more likely to say, well, here's my preferred view of atonement, but these other views are fine. And then they're going to say, and these other, these views like penal substitution and satisfaction theory, oh, no, no, I, those are out. So they have, nurturance are going to have what I call a range of views on a topic. They will prefer, may, they may prefer one over others, but they're going to find several that are acceptable. And so I call that a constrained pluralism. There's constraints. There's, there's plurality of views, but there are constraints. It's not, it's not anything goes. And here's, for the authoritatives listening to the podcast, you're likely, no, what you're saying is anything goes. You're a total relativist. No, I'm not. And nurturants are not relativists. Nurturants believe that there's a range of acceptable views, and then there's other views that are unacceptable. But for authoritatives, because you believe, no, there's only one correct view and I've got it. Well, then any other view is relativism. So this is what I was taught in college and seminary, that there's either the absolute view that you hold and it's the absolute truth or it's relativism. And those are the only two options. Like, no, those aren't the only two options. But in authoritative churches, that's what everybody's told. And so when you begin questioning authoritative Christianity, your only other option is, well, I guess I'm not a Christian. I must be a relativist. Because that's what you've been told. What I'm trying to help you, and I, but, I mean, over 35 years of teaching <laughs> in authoritative colleges, I've had so many students feel like, oh, so if I question this, I'm no longer a Christian. And I'm like, no, you're still a Christian. Do you believe Jesus is your Savior? Well, yeah. Do you believe God loves you? Well, yeah. Do you believe the Bible is a revelation from God? Well, yeah. Do you believe that the church is God's pilgrim you know, community uh, on the pathway to the kingdom? Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but they feel, this is the problem, they feel like they've given up their faith because they've only been told there's two options. And it's a lie. It's not true. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. Um, uh, the, the next question we, we wanted to get to are, um, what are cognitive models and how do they fit into this conversation? Okay, so so the natural scientists refer to these, uh, what are called cognitive models. So these are ways of living. And they're centered on core values that you have. So is your core, are your core values relational, cooperation, uh, empathy, uh, perspective taking, um, uh, caring about uh, the way um, uh, what others have or don't have, 
Does they have a right to a voice in the church? We need to hear them. Even if I disagree with them, do, do we need to hear them? So a cognitive model is a way of life, a way of living based on these uh, values. And so they've identified several models, like a permissive model, a, uh, 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 <coughs> excuse me, authoritative model, and a nurturant uh, model. Now, different researchers use different names. So it's not that everybody uses these three names uh, for the uh, models, but a model is basically a way of understanding and a way of, of living. And so they're metaphors for how to live. They're, they're what we would call conceptual metaphors, ways of thinking. Is there more you want me to say about that, Marty, or does that help? No, I, I think that I think that gets us where exactly kind of where we need to go. Just to, just that basic understanding of it for sure. Okay. So, yeah, no, that, that was perfect, John. Thank you. And so um, that then ties into, there's this idea. So, um, and you talk about it super nicely in, in your work, but um, metaphors play a hugely important role in our lives, um, you know, across the board. And a lot of the times, at least in, you know, my experience, uh, we use a parental metaphor, right, to talk about God you know, God is father or something like that. And so within that conversation, what role do our cognitive models then play in how we understand God? Right. So we can all say, for instance, that God is a parent. Authoritatives will say that as well. And nurturance will say that. And permissives will say that. But then you have a distinct cognitive model of nurturant view of parenting, authoritative view approach to parenting. Okay. These are vastly different. So the a, a, a child asks a question. And the authoritative parent says, because I said so. And, and that's end of discussion. You don't need to understand my reasoning. I said so. I'm the authority. I'm in charge. If you question the authority, you are questioning God. Because God put me in charge. The nurturant uh, uh, may say to the child, I don't know, you know, depending on the age. Okay, so a four-year-old, okay, you have limited ways of explaining to a four-year-old why the family has decided uh, about this rule, this way of you know, living in, the, in our, our home. But eventually, as, depending on the child's age, a nurturant is going to say, well, here's why we thought this is, is you know, here are the reasons why we operate this way. We believe this will produce a better harmonious family. Okay, so you're trying to explain to the to the, the child why you're doing what you're doing, what's in play, and the consequences, uh, the results may be. If you continue to do this to your sister, um, this could happen. She could get hurt. Um, she may have uh, emotional issues. We don't want that uh, to, to transpire in our family. So depending on the age, nurturants are going to explain. Authorities view that as, oh, you've just given up your authority. And nurturants are like, no, we believe that as children age, they have to be brought into the decision-making processes. Of course, parents lay out, nurturant parents lay out the ground rules that the family operates by. Um, uh, they, they establish uh, the rules uh, for the family. But uh, they're also open to questions. So it's an openness to the questions that's a key difference between uh, nurturance and, and authoritative. So they have different views of what a proper parent is. 
And then this gets into church leadership. They have different views of what a proper church leader is like and what they expect from them. So a nurturant is going to expect a nurturant church leader to listen to the minority in the congregation. Even if they disagree, those people should have a voice, a say-so in what we're doing. <clears throat> if you're an authoritative uh, church leader, no. Um, you make up the, the rules. Um, and if people question it, well, the, you don't belong here. So why don't you leave? You either must submit or leave. Exile is basically uh, what they do. Um, so does that help get it, what, what you were asking about, Josh, for the, the parenting models and how they work out in these different styles? Yeah, and and you know, I don't I don't want to necessarily kill the metaphor uh, and beat beat it too too deeply, but uh, as you were talking about the differences between being a parent with with an authoritative style and a nurturing style. Um, it, it made me just personally beg, it begs the question, is it possible to be both? Is it possible to oh, yes. yeah. have both at the same time? Um, so yeah, uh, that, that was just something that I thought of as you were talking. So, yes. So, um, <clears throat> re researchers, uh, find that, uh, there are what are called strong nurturants and strong authorities. There's basically four sets of questions that you answer about uh, traits in children that you prefer. And when you answer those questions, researchers can tell you what kind of coffee you'd like to drink, what kind of beer you'd like to drink, what kind of car you drive, um, uh, where, uh, what kind of uh, school you prefer. Um, they can tell all kinds of things about you. They can tell you how you're going to vote on certain uh, social issues. And I find that this same research shows you that I can predict what you're likely to think about atonement, what you're likely to believe about the Bible, hell. So the doctrines that I, I uh, address in the book, I believe that the research explains uh, all of those. Um, now, can you be both? Yes, there are people that researchers call mixed. They are a mix of nurturant values and authoritative values. So in the United States, for instance, 16% uh, of the population well, I, I just rounded up. So 42% of the population lean authoritative. 32% of the population lean nurturant. And so the rest are mixed right in the middle. They choose two of the preference uh, traits for child, uh, uh, that they prefer in children that are authoritative and two of the traits that are nurturant. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting to me. Um, so I guess our next question um, is, what does it mean to say that Jesus operated under a nurturing cognitive model? Yeah. So Jesus teaches that uh, God loves you, period. There is nothing you can do to make it that God loves you more than God already does. That, that's, that's just where we begin. So God does not say change and I will accept you. God says, I accept you. And that will help you motivate to change. That'll give you motivation. So it's the embrace of the loving father who says, I love you. I embrace you. I, are you perfect? No. <laughs> Do you have problems? Yes. Jesus called these people in Luke chapter 15, where he uses the parable. The term is called sinners. So these are Jews 
Sinner in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke refers to Jews who do not keep the, uh, the Sabbath, who do not practice the kosher food laws, um, etc. So Jesus says, do these people have problems? Yes. And I have come to redeem them. I have come to heal them. I have come to save them. Different metaphors. Now, going back to what you said about metaphors, Marty. Jesus uses a plethora of metaphors to talk about these people. They were lost. They were dead. Uh, they are sick. Those are different metaphors. For there's something wrong. And I have come to find the lost, to bring the dead back to life, to heal the sick. Um, you can also choose metaphors about adoption. They're not part of the family. They're adopted now. Paul uses that one. Um, but you can also say they're God's lost children. So they're not adopted. They are God's uh, children, and they're lost, and I'm bringing them home. You can also say that they're not citizens of the kingdom, and God makes them citizens of the kingdom. So there's lots of different metaphors uh, they can use. And notice that these are very relational metaphors. Authoritatives prefer metaphors about rule-breaking, law-breaking. So what is sin? Sin is breaking God's laws. So what is salvation? Well, somebody has to pay the penalty for breaking the laws. And so you get penal substitution. Jesus is the one who pays the price for breaking God's laws and hence makes it possible for God to accept you. So fundamentally different ways of thinking about God relating to us. So Jesus, I believe, is a nurturant who says God loves you. God uh, shows hospitality to us. God um, wants the relationship restored. It's, it's we who have the problem. We've, we're the ones who have broken the relationship. We're the ones who have left home. And, and God is searching for us. God is healing us. Uh, God is reaching out to us. Yeah, you know, and just just continuing that conversation, you have this really awesome chapter, beautiful chapter about God as love. Um, both authoritative and nurturing individuals make this claim, but how, how do they differ? Yeah. So for authoritatives, God's love is conditional. God loves you if you keep the rules. God loves you uh, when you clean up your life. Um, and for nurturance, it's no, God loves you unconditionally. Uh, and, and for authoritative, it's like, oh, so you believe that everybody can just run around sinning and God just loves them. God doesn't care. God's the permissive parent. Like, no. Nurturant parents believe that children are, are harming themselves and harming others. And so humans are harming one another and God wants to stop it. So the question is, again, how? How to get people to become transformed and live more loving lives, to follow Jesus more uh, uh, thoroughly in one's life? And so nurturants believe that is by the embrace of God. So they do, all Americans say, yeah, oh, of course, God loves people. But then how do you love people? Authoritatives and nurturants believe in very different understandings of love. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's good. And and um, I agree with Marty that, that that was one of my favorite chapters in the book is the, the God is Love chapter. And you have a really cool uh, section in there where you use this metaphor that I love, uh, where you say that God plays jazz. <laughs> and that's that's a very uh, open and relational thing to say. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? I know our listeners would uh, would love to hear that. Sure. So, so again, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a way of understanding. So it's not just rhetorical. It's actually how you conceive of God. So if you think of, and, and I'm no musician, but I have friends who are musicians, and, and they tell me, oh, jazz, very difficult to play. Um, and what a jazz band does is someone takes the lead for a while, and they create some kind of structure. And then other people in the band are invited to add to that, to contribute to it. And so let's say the saxophone player was the, taking the lead, and then it might turn to the pianist to say, now you take over, add to it, see what you can do. And so you contribute to it. So I think of God as the leader of a jazz band. So God's name is first on the marquee, okay? Yahweh or Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, in concert tonight, you know, uh, with their band. And we, the, the, the amazing thing is that God says to Josh and Marty and John, hey, as well as Susan and Allie and, and, and Brenda, contribute, join in this, uh, participate. Um, and it's not that we necessarily play as good as God. I don't think we, we do. But God says, no, but, but you're part of the band. You need to create music with me. I want to enable you to create music with me. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, and so that's different from other kinds of music where, again, actually, even conductors don't do this, but you can see it as a stereotype where a conductor says, look, the score is written. Your job is to play it exactly as it's written. No variation, uh, no interpretation. Um, just do it this way. And of course, that's actually how most conductors work. Um, but you can see it that way. You can see it, for instance, in uh, a, a, a director of a play. Do actors, are they given, hey, here's what we want. Here's, here's what we're trying to uh, create here. So give it your best. What do you think? And, the, and, and the, the actor actually has to be creative in how you portray uh, the script. Um, or does the director say, no, I'll give you very detailed instructions. You must follow them. In other words, I really, if I could use robots, I would <laughs> um, instead of actors. So the authoritative wants you to follow the script. And it's all written out and it's done. And, and nurturants are like, well, God has a trajectory. God has a, a destination, a pathway we're going. But we're pilgrims on the pathway. And we have to use creative interpretation uh, instead of uh, simply uh, repeating what people before us have done. Yeah, no, I love that. That's awesome. And that's also, honestly, one of my uh, biggest uh, draws to the realm of open and relational thought is ideas just like that. Um, it's just beautiful. And I maybe, so I'm a super relational person. So maybe that, you know, gives me somewhat of a bias, but um, yeah, I, fi I find that way helpful. Um, another thing that I think is interesting 
and uh, you you reference this in your book as well. Uh, some like a conviction that I have is that perhaps the most important element or aspect of our spiritual formation is how we image God, like what image yeah. of God we have in our mind. And so you talk about that and you talk about how different gods or different ideas of God create us in their image. And yeah. so how, how, do, how does then like that conception of God affect how we are to live and to behave? Yeah. So research, researchers show that um, just believing that God is this way or that way has huge uh, uh, implications for your life in terms of things like depression and anxiety, uh, guilt. Um, so in, in terms of our uh, well-being, it, it really comes into play what one uh, believes. Um, it also comes into play as to how you treat others. So is God fundamentally forgiving? Or is God fundamentally demanding? Now, of course, both sides are going to agree that God demands and God forgives. Both, but it's where is the emphasis? So does God show acceptance and emotional warmth first? And for nurturance, the answer is yes. And for authoritative, it's no. I will give you emotional warmth and acceptance if you follow the rules. Once you've demonstrated that you will follow the rules, now I, I accept you. So acceptance is earned in the authoritative way. So it, it makes sense. If you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get punished. That's the authoritative mantra. But in the nurturant mindset and approach to life, like with Jesus, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Forgive people 70 times seven. Like, uh, no, authoritative say, no, that, that will ruin society. We'll just have people just sinning all the time. <laughs> they won't take the rules seriously. And, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand. God wants you to change. And God changes you by saying, I love you. You are deeply loved. So one of the stories I, I, I say in the book is from the, the film, play, and book, Les Miserables. And so if, if some of the listeners have, have seen the movies, there's one with Hugh Jackman and one with Liam Neeson, if you haven't, oh my goodness, really, uh, watch the films. Uh, because in there, um, Jean Valjean is a criminal. He's been he was convicted of stealing bread for his family. Uh, he's put in prison. He's let out. <clears throat> he has no money, nowhere to go. And a priest takes him in and gives him, feeds him and gives him shelter for the night. And Jean Valjean steals the silverware, silver from uh, the, the priest's residence. And uh, the next morning, the police uh, capture Jean Valjean, bring him back and say, um, he, the criminal claims, the priest, that you gave him the silverware. And what we expect the priest to say at this point in the story, you, know, you and I watching the movie, what, you know, the play, I expect the priest to say, Jean Valjean, I showed you hospitality. I gave you grace when you didn't deserve it. And what did you do? You stole from me. So now you deserve to go back to prison. I gave you a chance. You blew it. But that's not what the priest in the story says. The priest says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. 
I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. So he calls Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean his brother, not a criminal, calls him brother. So just like in the prodigal son, the, the father doesn't call the son a worthless son. He doesn't call him a, a sinner. He says, welcome home, son. So the priest says, you are my brother, and you have a problem. And I am seeking to ransom your soul from evil and give it to God. So I find that a very moving story. Uh, that an, an example of Jesus incarnate. So this is an example of a priest actually following the nurturing path of Jesus. Because Jean Valjean asked him, when the police are gone, he says, why are you doing this? Why, why didn't you send me back to prison? And this is the priest's explanation. Because God loves you. And you need to change. But this is how we're going to change. I'm going to welcome and embrace you again and again and again. Not just one chance. I gave you one chance. You blew it. Yes, you blew it. Here's another chance. And that begins the process in Jean Valjean's life of becoming a different person. And he really does become uh, a, a, a person who wants to emulate Christ. Yeah, that's, um, I love, <laughs> I love that example. And I love that scene. I've used it with uh, students before. I've showed that clip uh, to some of my high school and young adult students, uh, but also um, it kind of comes to mind. This is, um, still within the realms of our conversation, but recently I had uh, read a book by Jim Wilder. If you've ever heard of Jim Wilder, he was a friend, uh, contemporary of Dallas Willard. Um, And yeah, so Dallas would do like the theology stuff, Jim, uh, psychologist, philosopher. um, And so he brought a lot of like neuroscience into the work and then him and Dallas tried to blend it together. And what I'm thinking of as you're speaking is they found in their in their work that um, a lot of times within the church world we have this idea that if only me the pastor whoever gets up and preaches the right message with the the right rational logical explanation of the passage with the correct belief then everyone in the congregation is going to grasp that idea and their lives are going to be transformed. Uh, but that's not what we find. And so Wilder talks about uh, rather, how can we help people build a loving, secure attachment? So he brings an yeah. attachment theory to right. the God who is love. And I think that ties very nicely into this conversation that we're having. Yes. Uh, so the, the, the work in cognitive science that I have uh, read, and again, I'm not a cognitive scientist, but I, I, I've read a fair amount of this, this work. And it shows you that simply giving people logical arguments is not sufficient to transform them. Very few people are uh, transformed by that. It's really that, um, and, and, and if you look at the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire, it wasn't apologetics that was the key. Now, I think apologetics have a place, please, okay, has a place. But that wasn't the key to, to growth. It was that, for instance, during the plagues in the third century, it was Christians who stayed in the towns, who um, uh, gave basic medical care to even non-Christians at the risk of their life. 
And the, the non-Christians looked at this like, there's something different about you people. <laughs> um, you actually care for others. Well, I want to be part of that community. If I live through the plague, I want to be, I want to join that community. And it was amazing. So Christians, um, uh, by showing acceptance, by care for, for others, by showing love and compassion, the, the Christian community grew by leaps and bounds in the Roman Empire. So, yes, these are the main ways. And, and so, um, uh, trying to think of his name, I can't, uh, teaches in Chicago. Oh, my goodness. He's a friend of mine. Um, uh, communities called uh, 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 Atonement. Oh, um, uh, Scott McKnight? Oh, Scott, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Scott McKnight. <laughs> Yeah, so Scott um, uh, McKnight uh, write, writes uh, books about uh, atonement and, and these other topics. And he says, the church needs to become a community of atonement, a place where forgiveness is regularly practiced. And it's when we do this um, that that's when people get it. And, and so uh, telling stories like Les Miserables, giving them exemplars to follow. So... Uh, there's actually a lot of cognitive science about uh, exemplar theory. So when people read in books, read in the Bible, and they see these stories and go, oh, I, I want to be like that. So it's stories. It's watching people in our congregations. And so if you see forgiveness practice between people who have messed up, yes, people mess up. So what do you do? Is there reconciliation? And if they see that, practice in their community, they are going to practice it themselves. But if it's just talked about, so I give a story in the book, and this was actually in a congregation I belonged to. And the parents uh, said, you know what? We gave this survey and the youth all say the right answers about Jesus and forgiveness and stuff. But other questions, and when we talk to them, they don't seem to really get it. And I'm like, well, yeah, because our congregation doesn't really practice forgiveness. If you screw up, you have to leave. You're exiled from this congregation. There's no forgiveness here. So it's no surprise to me that the youth say the right words, but don't really follow it. Yeah, that's that's the whole like idea of uh, between, you know, necessarily what you believe isn't always as important as how you believe it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 good. Well, John, um, we, we've we've definitely appreciated having you on. I think we just have one one or two more questions for you. Um, sure. So, uh, what role do these cognitive models play when it comes to religion and politics? Okay, so I believe they play out. And so I tried to explain like why uh, authoritatives, why penal substitution. Okay, so if those who don't know, that means um, humans break God's laws. And we deserve punishment, and the punishment is hell. So we deserve uh, hell for, we deserve eternal damnation for breaking God's laws. <clears throat> so the judge says, Sanders and the whole human race, you've broken my laws. You deserve damnation. I sentence you to hell. So I'm getting up to go to hell. The, the, the officers are leading me out of the courtroom. And Jesus comes in and says, hey, Dad, I'll go to hell for Sanders in his place. So it's called penal substitution. Jesus is the substitute for the penalty in my place. So why does that view make sense 
to authorities and nurturants find it abhorrent. It's just like, what? I mean, if, if I had three older brothers and let's say that I screwed up and my dad said, well, John, I'm going to have to punish you, you know, the, the rules. And one of my brothers said, hey, dad, um, you can punish me instead of John. I'd be like, great. <laughs> what a brother. Awesome, man. Um, so my brother would get the punishment instead of me. But somebody's punished. Can't my dad just forgive? And the answer for these authoritatives is no. And St. Anselm said this in the 11th century. God cannot just forgive. That would be immoral. So the cognitive models explain why authoritatives believe somebody has to be punished. A price must be paid. There is no free lunch. And you know, apply to politics. Yes, just as you cannot be soft on sin, you cannot be soft on crime. These people must be punished and punished severely because then there'll be examples for other people not to do it. They've broken the, the authorities. Nurturants believe that people should, uh, uh, yes, we have to have rules. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All societies need rules. But it's how do you, which rules do you put in place and how do you enforce the rules? What do you do with the rule breakers? Is the desire to have reconciliation and restitution in society, or is it just punishment? So our criminal justice system in the United States is, is all focused on punishment. It's not focused on restitution, that is, helping the people who were the victims of the crime. And it's not focused on um, uh, reinstatement of the offender, the criminal, back into society. We don't want them reconciled. Nurturants want to change our criminal justice system. Um, and it comes out in politics, uh, everything from healthcare uh, to um, uh, uh, wage uh, stagnation and income inequality. Uh, uh, authoritatives believe that the United States, it's a level playing field. Everybody has uh, equal opportunity. So if you're not successful, it's because you're a sinner. You didn't take your education seriously and work hard. Uh, you got on drugs. You got pregnant, whatever it, it, you know, the explanation is. So you don't deserve to be successful. You deserve to be punished. And God is punishing you by being poor. So the authoritative mindset, this all makes sense. Nurturants are more likely to think, well, yeah, we've, we've screwed up and some people haven't, you know, didn't work hard in their education and that. Um, but can you give them a, a second chance, another chance, like the prodigal son, um, like Jean Valjean in uh, Les Miserables? And for nurturance, it's, yes, we, we, we should give people another chance. And they also tend to argue it's not a level playing field. I mean, just, just one statistic I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you in terms of um, income inequality. From 1943 to 1973, worker productivity in the United States rose 103%. Wages went up 103% during that time period. From 1973 to 2014, worker productivity went up 72%. Wages went up 8.3%. Okay, <laughs> something happened here. <laughs> Worker productivity kept going up. Wages did not go up even close to that percentage. Why? Well, the economic 
laws were written in such a way that worker productivity was not rewarded. So people are working very hard and their wages are not going up. So I think that the authoritative claim that the level playing field is false. But they still tell the narrative that if you work hard and you're successful, if, so rich people, they're successful. So, hey, they don't, they don't have to pay taxes. Um, you should not punish people by making them pay taxes. Nurturance think of taxes as, well, okay, we've made this money for the family. We want a, a good society. We want a good family and society. So we need infrastructure. We need education. We need roads, et cetera. Um, and, and so these are revenues to pay for the infrastructure we believe to have a healthy society. So we think of taxation differently. We think of uh, income inequality differently. And, and we think of all these Christian doctrines differently. So that's how I spell it out in the book, try to explain this. It almost seems like, and I don't want to go there because I know that we would get on a tangent, but it almost seems like the authoritative and the nurturing types fall into specifically very neatly into one political party affiliation and then the other political party affiliate. In some ways, there seems to be a lot of connection there. So, so um, in, in my chapter called Religious Politics, I know it's on the right-hand page, and, and it's a note at the bottom of the page. Um, but what I say is, is that um, there is no political party that is wholly nurturant, and there's no political party that's wholly authoritative. But what has happened in the last 50 years, and there's a wonderful book written by these two political scientists that I cite in my book, um, and they study over the last 50 years that the Republicans and Democrats in the United States used to be much more a blend mixture of authoritatives and nurturance. What's happened in the last 50 years is much more, uh, the Republican Party has basically said to nurturance, you don't belong here. They still are there. They're still nurturance. John Kasich, for instance, I believe is, is nurturant. And there are other uh, nurturants. Um, and the uh, Democrats have become much more homogenous towards nurturing values, the nurturing cognitive model. So it's still not 100%, but they have been, it's called the great sort, and they have been uh, becoming uh, bifurcated in that way. Um, so yes, I do, but I'm, again, I'm not going to say that the Democratic Party is nurturing and the Republican Party is authoritative. But in terms of policies, this is what is working its way out. Mm. These two cognitive models are working their way out politically, and I'm saying they were also in the church. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, just for me, that, that understanding has been so helpful um, because what it does then is, is if you can – understand you know the cognitive models the difference between you know someone who's more predisposed towards an authoritative state of mind versus a nurturant mm -hmm. and i i hope <laughs> the fruit of that would be humility right yeah. that that it, it helps us become humble because we can recognize okay here's why i you know from a neurological perspective here's why i tend to fall into a more nurturing um you know frame of reference however my buddy you know, uh, so-and-so who, um, 
is a hyper Calvinist and is very authoritative. Okay. Now I understand why he feels that way. It's not that he's stupid or that he doesn't right. love Jesus or that he doesn't read the Bible the, the right way or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It, it, it just, it brings a level of understanding that I, my hope is it brings humility and then that humility can bring the authoritatives and the, the nurturing people together to recognize, wait a minute, Jesus is what matters here. And we might disagree, but hopefully we can, we can come together. Yeah, exactly. So I hope that the book will help people just by understanding. So my own family, this, this is not some abstract issue. This is my own extended family where I have people who's, who look at me like, well, you're not even moral. You don't believe in morals. And I'm like, no, I, I believe in morals, but not the way you do. So I, I get that. But so I understand their authoritative uh, way of life and value system. So I can talk to them and say, oh, so would you rather me say this? Or would, do you think this way? So I can ask them questions and they go, oh, yes, that's exactly what I would say. Well, now we can have a conversation. And it might lead to persuasion. And I, I don't think it's, again, just giving them arguments, but, uh, but it indeed is giving reasons uh, uh, for things, but also then modeling and seeking to show. And so it's, it's the way of life and talking that both of those may help to um, help them transform away from their authoritative mindset to what I believe Jesus taught. And that's a, a nurturing way of life. Well, John, this conversation has been really great. I've, I've really appreciated everything you've had to say. And um, it's just been so, um, I, I really appreciate the, I, the, the nuances between them. You know, I, I find that um, I found myself um, identifying in many ways, like as a parent on occasion with the authoritative side, but then also, <laughs> yeah. um, but I have four young children, you know, old, my oldest is 10, my youngest is six. So um, at times that there is more authoritative needed in that aspect. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then as I'm starting to see with my 10 year old, there is the nurturing side does need to actually come more as they get a little bit older, kind of opening the doors and giving more freedom. Um, so I've, I've appreciated reading and, and listening and talking with you today. Um, where, where can people find you or connect with you and connect with your work? So I have a website, uh, DR and then John Sanders. Uh, dot com. So it's drdoctorjohnsanders.com. Uh, has a website where I talk about different things I've written on and issues. Um, so people can uh, uh, do that. Um, and I do have a professional uh, Facebook page. Uh, again, uh, if you search Facebook for uh, Dr. John Sanders, uh, you, can, you can find me there contact me that way. Awesome. So thank you, Josh and, and, and Marty. Uh, I just so deeply appreciate you, you having me on uh, your show. And hopefully this will um, help people think about things more and we can foster a conversation about uh, these issues in, in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, I can speak for our listeners and say that um, this was a wonderful conversation. It's going to help many people. And it was very enjoyable. And also, too, I think um, if you <laughs> if you like hanging out with us today, it would be fun sometime to uh, to get back together so we can nerd out over um, the the way I first ran into you, which was through the God yeah. who risks. <laughs> yeah. 
that yes. could be a good time. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So I actually believe that um, the God who risks, when Clark Pinnock and I got together and really started developing this model called open uh, theism, we, we talked about this. this is, we both agreed that it had implications for how we live. It wasn't just solving biblical and theological issues. It was really about uh, life. Uh, and embracing prodigals is kind of the fruit of that, that, that Pinnock and I talked about. Um, so are, are there authoritative open theists? Yes. Yes, uh, there are. Um, and, and some of them now are now upset with me, like, what? You're embracing these ideas? Like one person said, you got rid of, of, of hell. I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I talk about hell differently than, than you think. Um, so, yes, we, we, I'd love to come back talking to you more about uh, that as well. Yeah, that would be fun, especially, too, because you kind of uh... – sparked an idea from one of our friends, another friend of the show, uh, Dr. Curtis Holtzen, who wrote The God oh, yeah. Who Trusts. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Who, yeah. who very much used The God Who Risks as kind of the foundation for what he did. And we love Curtis. Curtis is awesome. He's um, a, he is. He's, he's a, a good a dude. great, great uh, Christian and human being. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So shout out to you, Curtis, because I know you're listening. That's two. That's that's multiple weeks in a row where Curtis has had a shout out. So I know we have to we have to cut out we have to cut out the shout outs, Marty. That way we don't uh, inflate Curtis's ego or anything like that, right? <laughs> we have to we have to stop saying nice things about Curtis. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, John, thank you again so much. This was wonderful. Uh, we would love to to connect uh, with you again sometime. And also, Tom, if you're listening, thank you so much uh, for connecting us with uh, John. Um, Dr. Thomas J. Ord is, is the one who made this happen. So thank you so much, Tom. John, again, thank you for your time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your work. And um, listeners, uh, thanks for supporting us. And as always, go Caps. And go Blackhawks. And I guess North Stars as well. Yes, go Minnesota North Stars. <laughs> Peace and love, guys. <laughs> <laughs>